listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week October 31st to November 4. Uh, highlights this week we had Jane Gazzo come in to talk about the 20th anniversary of recovery and also we had a chat about our least favourite chores begging closing the line and Gideon Haig came in to talk about his new book A Stroke of Genius and Hayley Inch reviewed the kind of crazy sounding new Mel Gibson film Hacksaw Ridge This year marks 20 years since ABC's iconic Saturday morning music show Recovery was first broadcast on our screens. To celebrate this anniversary, a best of CD and DVD collection will be released later this month, featuring musical and interview highlights from years and years of unscripted anarchy. Here to reminisce about hair clips, Dylan Lewis's penchant for oversized retro suits, and uh, what it's like to watch the John Spencer Blues Explosion destroy a studio on live television. We're joined by former Recovery host, Triple M radio broadcaster Jane Gazzo. And former Triple R. And I was going to say, <laughs> welcome back to the Triple R studio. I don't think I've been on Triple R this early since I was doing summer breakfasters with Cherry Bar's James Young. Wow. In the early 90s. That is old school. And that would have been at the old studio. Yeah, Victoria Street Fitzroy. Oh, how's it feel to be back? It's nice. As professional as ever. It feels, it, you know, it still has the same smell. I remember this smell because I was a young teen. And you, you remember things like this. And yeah. it's great. I'm sorry about the smell. Yeah. <laughs> But Mostly that people that don't comment on it. Community smell of uh, just freshness. No, I think it's just sweat. <laughs> yeah, probably that too. At least, you know, see, back in those days, people smoked in the studios oh in the early nineties because there was no smoking ban. So you'd always have that turntables reeking of that, you know, just last night's smoke and oh, I did uh, spit. I did suspect someone had been smoking here the other day, but I probably shouldn't be mentioning that live <laughs> on air. There was tobacco scattered across the station, but that's fine. It's it happens from time to time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we are here to talk about recovery. Uh, a couple of years ago, former recovery film guy, uh, Lee Winnell, who went on, I don't know what happened to him, he went nowhere, described recovery <laughs> as a genuine, uh, as genuine unpolished anarchy achieved by the producers hiring young people with zero TV experience and letting them loose in a TV studio. Is this how you remember your time as part of recovery? He summed that up quite well. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing more to say. Because <laughs> how old were you when you were... Uh, I was in my early 20s. I hadn't had any TV experience whatsoever. Uh, after I got poached by Triple J from being on Triple R. They heard me on Triple R and I got poached by Triple J. Um, to, to They were being accused of being Sydney-centric at the time and by having me in Melbourne do a do a flagship show week weeknightly, uh, that would, you know, bring up the Melbourne content, so it were as it were. So through being at the ABC, that led me to recovery. And um, I spent four fantastic years there where I think I learnt, you know, a decent amount of uh, TV, st- yeah. TV stuff to what, get me through. So what was the brief you were given when you first poached for that job? Oh, my God, there was no brief. <laughs> there was no brief. And that's the beauty of the show. I don't think you could get away with that these days because TV networks are so, oh, music doesn't rate and uh, no one, everyone turns off when music when music comes on. I don't think you could get away with that at the ABC or anywhere now. It's, it was pretty unique format. So it was three hours of live television every Saturday morning. I was probably 12 or 13 when it was on and it was 13, 14. Yeah, that age where it was my kind of awakening, my musical awakening. I stopped listening to Oasis and discovered who Sonic Youth was. It was a very big part of my life. Do you find that you still have people coming up to you 20 years later and going, oh, you know, kind of reminiscing with you about it all? If I had a dollar for every young person I've interviewed in bands that said, 
the reason why I'm, I'm in a band is because of recovery. Yeah, wow. It, you know, I think I'd be quite rich. I think yeah. Dylan would be too. <laughs> and you're always, I mean, we, we programmed Rage, did a recovery special on Rage recently, and even walking in the ter- in the airport terminal to go to Sydney to, to do it, uh, a guy stopped us and said, oh, my God, recovery can I talk about John Spencer Blues explosion? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is 20 years later and we're getting stopped in an airport and we said, oh, we're, we're actually co-hosting Rage. Uh, you know, it's going to be on at this date, blah, blah, blah. It's just, yeah, it, it, it's uncanny. It really is. And, and I don't think a show has had that impact since. No, in, this is the mid-90s when you guys were doing this, so this is kind of pre-internet. Mm. Uh, you would have had to do all the research yourselves. Have, doing research on bands, especially international bands like Sonic Youth, when yeah. you had no internet to fall back on it was literally reams of paper that the record company would give you and you would have to go through you know reams and reams of paper read um old newspaper articles and then you'd have to listen to the album so that you had you know because you wanted to come across as knowing something about the band yeah totally and i mean there's some pretty brilliant interview moments um and not so brilliant and not right. so brilliant. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm good with the not so brilliant as well but i think that's what made it so good as a kid watching this i loved watching you know uh, dylan lewis kind of trying to talk to rivers kumo who was either really stoned or really jet-lagged. It was sometimes hard to tell what was wrong with the bands. But how did you kind of deal with those really challenging moments? Can you remember that? Oh, my God, the Dandy Warhols. They gave me hell. They gave me grief. (laughs) Um, I don't see... The wonderful thing about recovery was it was on 9 to 12 on the ABC Saturday mornings and a lot all the bands that, that appeared who played live did play live, like there was no backing tape, nothing else. But a lot of them had usually had a gig the night before, maybe at the Prince of Wales, maybe at the Punners Club, who, who knows. So they would come in for like a 7am sound check and they was they still reeked of like, you yeah. know, last <laughs> night, you know, drinking last night. They hadn't been to bed, you know, nine times out of ten. And here they were, you know, doing a sound check at 7am to go on air, you know, for nine o'clock. And um, I remember the dandies, they, um, well, it's on YouTube, you can see it for yourself, <laughs> but it was a tough <laughs> interview to get through, it really was. And, and I think simply for the fact that they... They, they were probably A, jet-lagged, B, you know, still hung over from the night before. But, I mean, the wonderful thing is, you know, time, I mean, I, I've caught up with those guys countless times since and they they were so apologetic about that interview <laughs> and that, you know, couldn't do enough for me when I when I was, when I was caught up with them in London and, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're good guys. When you were looking through all the footage to, to compile a 20th anniversary stuff, were, were you stumbling across moments that you couldn't remember? I and mean, if so, what were the ones that jumped out at you? I, I couldn't believe half the bands that we had on. I didn't remember half of them. We had All Saints on. I mean, yeah, you know, the <laughs> and, I, and then when I saw the um, saw them on... Was that like 90s irony or was it a genuine thing well, at the time? Well, we had Natalie and Brulia. I mean, we oh, did... Wow. We, we had certain certain types or calibres yeah. of, of pop starlets. I do remember one pop starlet came in who shall remain nameless. <laughs> she brought her own makeup artist because she didn't want the ABC makeup artists um, touching her face. And... When when she kind of you know took off whatever makeup she she was wearing to be made up for TV, I realised why she'd had like incredible amounts of plastic surgery <gasps> and it looked like they hollowed out her cheeks. And I looked at her and I, I went like you did. Yeah. Sarah. I went, oh, oh my goodness! And of course, but once her makeup artist made her up and you know she went on she went went on TV, she looked fabulous. But it was like oh my god, wow! But then you know there's moments like Lenny Henry, the comedian. I needed an umbrella to do the interview with him. He was just spit city. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you just, and you remember things like that because you're going, oh, my Gross. God, I've got to stop this interview soon because I'm getting rained on here. You know, um, Dave Hughes had his first ever, I think, uh, television appearance on Recovery. Really? You know, there was comedy. Mm. We had, I mean, we tried a lot of things. Do you, was there a moment uh, that you kind of felt like the nervous young girl who didn't have any experience? Was there a, a person that you met or an interview that you did that kind of stands out for you as a really wow moment? Because now you've kind of interviewed everyone, like you've done everything. But can you remember one? Jarvis Cocker of Pulp, lead yeah. singer of Pulp. He, he was such a... He's such a brilliant man and he's incredibly intelligent and I'd been a massive Pulp fan for years. I just thought their music was incredible and I kind of lost it a little bit. I fangirled yeah. and I, I kind of handed it over to Dylan to because, he you know, Dylan didn't love Jarvis as much as I did. Um, so I kind of – and I, re, I regret that now because looking back on the footage I'm just looking like the stupid fangirl <laughs> that I was. Uh, but, but at the time I really couldn't – I couldn't string words together. But that's kind of what made it so endearing as well well because we were fangirls watching it so to kind of watch hosts that we thought were the, you know the epitome of cool for us at the time well <laughs> yeah. I do it now as well Jane but uh, you know to watch that I think it made it so accessible in a way that I can't see music TV being available these days yeah you said before but that um TV executives now say music shows don't rate there's no interest in it is do, do you think do you think there's something in that has the world changed you talking before about the impact of you know, the internet in terms of researching stories. Was that show of a time or do you think it could something similar could work today? I'm, I'm always of the opinion something similar could work if given the chance. I just think the way we view um, music television is quite different now. Obviously, kids watch a lot of music television through their phones, a lot of YouTube clips, but that's what's helped recovery's longevity is because kids are going back and looking at uh, clips of certain bands on YouTube. Like, we had... Blink-182, who is still relevant now with the kids, if you know what I mean. We had one of their first, earliest appearances in Australia on recovery and people are going back to those recovery clips 20 years ago and going, oh, my God, Blink-182, mm. we're on this show. Um, that's, that's what I, I think's helped recovery is longevity. But even I've, I interviewed a Sydney band who had only been around for a few years, the Gooch Palms, and they're living in LA and they're showing people the deftones on recovery and saying, look what happened on Saturday mornings. We had this anarchic um, television show and, and their flatmates, all their American flatmates are watching it going, oh, my God. So I think with the use of YouTube and mobile phones and things like that, I think the way we consume music television is completely different, but I think there's a way to do it in a format that would be relevant for now. Yeah, I think it's also nice... You know, you were a, a recovery was a voice of a generation, and it was that you know we got to watch. For me, you know, you're only a couple of years older, and it was you know exciting to see mistakes on on TV. Nothing mm. was polished, and I like that. And I think the, there should be room for that on TV now. And it's and it also creates an environment for to see bands on TV, and also and comedy for me. I, like I watched a lot of comedy on on that show. And it was a big inspiration for me, um, but I, so I definitely think there's room. To, it'd be great to bring it back. Mm. I think. Well, there has been rumours that there's going to be a reboot. Are they just? Is it all lies? It's not all lies, Sarah. Oh, it's not well, all lies. What's happening then? Well, things, things, things are being talked about behind closed doors. Oh. 
But I mean, look, the the response from like just the 20th anniversary, because I couldn't believe that it was 20 years oh. that it went to air. So I thought, well, we should do something. We got all the cast and crew together and Lee Winnell came out from LA, you know, stop, stop filming the Saw franchise <laughs> and the Insidious <laughs> franchise um, and, and came out for it. And that was really fantastic. And then Rage and then I guess the DVD. So it's been a... a Slow snowball effect, but... Then you were interviewed on Triple R and it just all blew up again. (laughs) (laughs) And it went downhill from there. (laughs) Never to be heard of again. um, I'm going to take a track now from the John Spencer Blues Explosion. It is Two Kinds of Love. Just really quickly, what was your memory of this moment? Oh, my God. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. This moment is, you know, should forever go down in history as one of the most incredible live music television events ever in Australia. Just John Spencer (laughs) smashing up the entire set (laughs) and just... Explosion all over the place. It, it, you know, really, it's it's it hasn't lost any of its uh, of its uh, Im- impact that it had, and and definitely worth a YouTube look if uh, if you've got you know five minutes today. Recovery, the best of CD and DVD collection will be out via ABC Music very soon. Jane Gazo, thank you very much for coming in today. I hate, <laughs> I hate peeing clothes on the line. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate it so much. I hate it so much. It is hands down my least favourite chore to do around the house. And you know what? I was discussing this on the weekend. I I wanted to work out why and I think it's because... I can tell you why, but, yeah, tell me your reason why. Well, a few reasons, but I think it's because you get no uh, satisfaction at the end of it. So you, you peg the clothes out which is already one part of a three-part process, Mm -hmm. putting things in the washing machine, pegging them out and taking them off. But then it just all happens again a few days later. Like there's this constant cycle to washing. Well, you're constantly washing clothes and things. So you peg things out and you hang them on the line. All chores are constant. No, but that's but life. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but say with the say with the bathroom, I feel mm-hmm. like you clean the bathroom. Oh, and you, you get, get to a enjoy good, it. You get a little bit of good time where oh. you have a couple of weeks, you know, it depends how clean your bathroom is, how long you can last. Oh, weeks? Well, it depends how, if you like, like I kind of do a bit of a surface clean oh, so okay. that I get longer out of it. So it's a satisfying process. Pegging the things out, you just think in and a couple about- of hours, I have to come back out here and take them off the yes. line. No, well, I don't have an outside line, so I don't have that problem. Yeah, I mm. we. Do you know what I don't like about it is having lift your arms up. Oh, it's very tiring. It is. <laughs> you have to lift your arms up and put them out and, oh, and, and peg so many little pegs. Yeah, the pros you lift it up, you lean down, you pick up the peg, you pick up the peg, you peg the peg, then another peg. Oh, do you leave your pegs in the basket? No pegs on the line. No pegs on the line. My mum always had pegs on the line growing up. We always had the pegs Love on the pegs line. Pegs on the line. Yeah, it's we don't good do pegs it at on the house line anymore. Um, and oh. it, people are very much against pegs on the line because they're not where you want them to be. But you just very easy to move them along. How do you feel about feel, pegs on the I line? Feel you guys are sooking. <laughs> no, excuse when, me, when, Mister doesn't have to do it. No, but when I did, you you bring the you bring the hills hoist down. I lower. don't have hills hoist. Oh, how tall are you? Who has the hills hoist? Well, where is you it? have? You bring it down you lower, can't so bring you don't down have lower. to reach up. I no, can't. how tall do you think we are? You still have yeah. to reach up. I can't lower mine. I yeah. live in a, a unit. There's someone calling someone through. Do you reckon this person's going to agree with us? Oh, I don't probably. know. If not. I know, they've gone. Nah. Call back. If no, you agree with well, me. I, 
don't think that's... What's your least favourite household chore? Oh, a million times worse than that is emptying the cat litter. That's the worst chore of all time. Why? But you know why I don't feel bad for you? Because you've chosen to have a cat. Yeah. You've chosen to have clothes. Just choose not to have a cat. <laughs> I don't have to have clothes. Hello, you're on Triple R. Oh, hi. Sorry, that wasn't me to begin with. Um, you, what you need to do... Yeah, you've got to turn your radio down. Oh, shit, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> I could just hear a thousand of you. I'm very good at this. All right. A real good solution to your pegging out in the thing. You have to have a baby. Oh. oh well, that's yes. Why? Have a baby. Right, have a baby because when you're pegging, when you're getting ready... There is nothing more satisfying in that nesting stage than seeing all your baby's clothes and nappies flapping in the in on the line. Really? And then that baby, yes. And then you get to put the clothes on the baby and smell them, and it's lovely. And then, and then the best thing is the baby goes up, and then they get to pass you the clothes. Win <laughs> <laughs> win. I love. I like this solution. I feel like it involves a lot of commitment on my end, <laughs> but. <laughs> Of effort, but then it's a lifetime of having somebody pass you close. <laughs> Thank you very That's much for your call. I appreciate that advice. Very good. That was a solution you didn't see coming. No, it really is a good solution. Do you want to say, do you know, I think I um, despise the hanging the clothes on the line side, but A, for the arms, having arms up in the air all the time, it's tiring. Yes. But also memories from when I was a child. And mum making me peg clothes on the line one day when it was like a, there was a heat wave and there was like a bushfire, like only a few kilometres from... Jeez, there's that. a few things wrong with this story. Yeah. <laughs> Should have been evacuating your house. Well, no, we're in... Like, we weren't under threat. Get the clothes out. We weren't under threat, but oh, it was... Dry in a minute. <laughs> it, it was a day that it was clearly quite hot. Right. Um, and just been and it had been so windy and trying to put a fitted sheet on the line. Oh, the worst thing to peg, a fitted sheet. The worst. Also, do you know what else I don't like is when I get lazy and I put the clothes all on the washing line and don't peg them, which I do often enough oh, that my partner you? yells oh. at me about it because I put them all out and I go, oh, this will be right. And then I come out the back <laughs> and they're just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And he always says, Sarah, oh, the clothes are everywhere. It's so sunny, windy day. I know. And I go, just blow. <laughs> okay, yeah. so this is the other advantage of apartment living because you don't have an outside line, right? So you just have like a clothes rack drying yes. thing that sure. you just – yeah. then you can put all of your clothes on that. You don't have to peg them because there's no winds inside. But what's more, once they're out there – then you can just use it as an outside wardrobe. Yeah, I use, you know what, so last That's night. That's exactly what I do. Last <laughs> night I, I hung my things on a, because it was raining outside, I hung my things on the clothes horse in front of the heater. And this morning I woke up and took off what I needed. That's right. I and love you it. do that every, yeah. you save, every morning. Every morning. <laughs> you yeah. save all that time you would have had to have gone into the club, the cupboard and open a door and get things out. Yeah. So it's a time saver. It's all just hanging there. I agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just, glad that we're all on the same page God, with this. We're shocking human beings. Do you... <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favourite chore though? Like the easiest one. So if you and St. Kath say are fighting over something to do, you pick one and go, ha ha. Oh. You don't know that I don't care about this. Maybe. I don't uh, If I'm in the right mood and depending on how the person is, I don't mind doing the dishes. Oh, yeah. There's Do- something soothing about doing the dishes. Mm. I agree. There's someone on the line. Let's just see yes. what happens. Hello, you're on Triple R. 
G'day, there's <clears throat> one thing worse than hanging a uh, fitted sheet on a line. Yes. That's hanging two fitted sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Thanks, like, mate. Like, like I was doing yesterday in the bloody wind. Oh, oh it would have been a terrible day for yesterday. Shocking. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. Thanks. All right, bye. That is so funny. Uh, well, what's what's your job that you don't mind doing? The one that I don't mind doing is probably putting the dishes away. Oh, oh, I don't yes. mind I that. There's something. That. Oh, really? Yeah, I always used to end up just jumbling them all in the one cupboard oh. and then well, just you, closing the cupboard. You just door. need to reorganise your cupboard oh, no, and know no, where things go. I, like that's the annoying thing about putting things away is you know if you don't know where they go. But if you're living alone, mate, that's on you. Yeah, well, they can go all kinds of different <laughs> you places. Do, you don't even have to put your dishes away. You just live with piles of dishes around you. Yeah. <laughs> Who's here to judge? Your clothes. Why I put them away? Yeah. Right, all right. I'll just jumble all my stuff in a big pile <laughs> and ferret around in it each morning. And dish clothes, food. Frankly, it's kind of how I imagined you'd live until I went to your wife. The Stroke of Genius, Victor Trumper and the Shot That Changed Cricket is a new book just out now via Penguin. We're joined by its writer, the journalist and historian Gideon Haig. Welcome to Breakfasters. Gideon. Good morning. This book, it's not really a biography of a person so much as a biography of an image of a person. But let's mm. start with sure. the person. Who was Victor Trumper? Victor Trumper was the first great Australian sporting hero, in a sense, in insofar as he had a nation to represent. He sort of occupies that rather blurrily defined now period between Federation and the First World War when the nation is in Cahate. And he's he's perhaps the, uh, uh, the pioneer of certain characteristics of Australian cricketer. You know, he's a naturally adventurous, naturally enterprising, naturally stylish, naturally aggressive cricketer. Uh, almost sui generis in his period because up until then Australian cricketers have been sort of admired for their resilience and their pragmatism and their will to win but not necessarily their aesthetic style. Uh, Trumper was slim, elegant, broad-shouldered, superb physical specimen but a wonderfully stylish attacking batsman. In a period where where cricket is becoming conscious of its sort of artistic uh, possibilities, uh, the uh, the beautiful shapes that a human body can form, uh, the magnificent sort of uh, physical lessons that it that it can impart to the culture. So he's a, he's the embodiment of uh, of of the Edwardian uh, stylist. Uh, immediately before the before the First World War, when um, when a lot of that. Uh, that past sort of recedes into antiquity. Uh, your book tells Trumper's story, but it's centred on a particular photograph of Trumper entitled Jumping Out. What is mm. that image? Well, it's a photograph taken by a very, very fascinating man called George Beldham. Now, George Beldham was a first-class cricketer. He played uh, for Middlesex for, for many years, but that was actually the least interesting thing about him. He was an independently wealthy English gentleman of leisure. Who, uh, whose family owned a maritime engineering company that made insulation for boilers, including the Titanic. Uh, also made pneumatic tyres. There were four Belden pneumatic tyres on Lawrence of Arabia's Rolls-Royce in the, uh, in the Western <laughs> Desert in 1914. <laughs> 
But uh, he had the opportunity, because of his wealth, to, uh, to indulge his three great passions, which were watercolour art, fly fishing and photography. Such and an English gentleman. He, he is <laughs> of a, of a, sort of a, a unique uh, leisure society, in a sense, and one that we probably find difficult to relate to now because it was kind of swallowed up by the First World War. But he was fascinated by how the great players did the things that they did. And he happened to be a brilliant camera artist. He had the best equipment of his time and an absolute commitment to, uh, to uh, recording photographic truths. He took thousands of, of plates of, uh, of English and Australian, South African and West Indian cricketers before the First World War and published them in two great works, great batsmen and great bowlers and fielders. Were it not for these photos, we would have absolutely no idea how any of these players looked. And he was clearly very fascinated by Trumper. There are more photographs of Trumper than there are for anybody else, which is an interesting statement in itself. You know, it's a kind of a... It's a tribute to uh, to Trumper's greatness and also a kind of a statement of, uh, of social parity, in a way. The English amateur uh, accords recognition to, uh, to, to the, the colonial master batsman. Mm. So where then does jumping out stand in the history of sports photography? Because it's very much yes. as sports photography is, it's very early stages, isn't it? It is. Well, it's, it's before, really, we have anything like action photography. Previous to that, uh, well, cr- cricket, you think about it, is defined by two factors, the viewing of cricket, which is that the, dist- the, the, the action takes place a long way from the spectators and that it takes place in a split second. So it's very, very difficult for a live spectator to access it from a distance. In fact, these days we're completely accustomed to the idea that we will have technological assistance in our accessing of that action. We see everything myriad times from, from up close through, uh, through uh, you know, both slow motion, um, snicko, uh, stump mics, uh, you know, almost almost everything that you could imagine. It's very difficult to, to conceive of what cricket was like a hundred years ago mm. when you had to rely on uh, on on the naked eye. So when Beldham took this photograph in in 1905 at the Oval, uh, until that time, cricket photography had been basically men standing around holding poses, you know, holding their bats up or holding their arm up in the air if they were a bowler. And, you know, striking a kind of a moody sort of Edwardian posture. <laughs> but they weren't doing cricket. You know, was, they were being cricketers, but they weren't doing cricket. Was that the same for all sporting photography? Or was no, it well, kind of... s- some, some sports naturally suited photography better, like horse racing. You, you could be guaranteed sure. there would be action, generally proximate to a camera near the finish line. Uh, horse racing is probably the first uh, sport that's really photographed in in detail. Cycling is another one. Athletics is another one where you could get relatively close to the action. Uh, even if you couldn't pick up maybe the definitive moment, you could do something to uh, to, to freeze that, that action in a thousandth of a second. But Beldam conquered that by photographing the players in practice. You know, he would go out onto the field in an interval in a game, that's what he did with the Trumper photo, and encourage the players to go through their through their paces. He had this very interesting technique where he would bowl the ball with his right hand and squeeze the a pneumatic push in his left hand that was connected to the camera so that he would flick the shutter as he bowled the ball. Amazingly difficult thing to do. But that was how he got these amazing images. He was a cricketer himself, so he sort of understood how how cricketers performed their actions. He just wanted to understand them better. Did the absence of photography change the way that sports 
was played. I mean, I was thinking about that reading the book. That mm. If you've never seen images of top flight yes. sports people, how did you actually know how the game was played? I mean, did it lead to massive regional variations between the way sports was played? It's a good question. It's a little bit like that argument about... Um, uh, I, I talk in the book about Edward Maybridge's photos of, of, of racehorses where, you know, he was encouraged in the 1880s to photograph racehorses to kind of talk about, to, to, to work out whether all four feet of a racehorse left the ground at the same time. And up until then, in equestrian painting, horses had been painted with their legs out as though they were in rocking horses. And then Maybridge, when he takes his photographs, demonstrates that at various points in a horse's progress, they have all four feet off the ground. That's an amazing discovery, and it kind of changes people's understanding of, the, of which the, uh, the a horse race's physicality changes in the course of a race. I think where, where cricket's concerned, what it chiefly demonstrated was that the posed photograph was very different from the, from the, from the figure in motion. You know, up until then, if you look at sports photographs, they're very staid. They're very constipated. Uh, it's there's there's nothing to do with um, it would, nothing would explain to you how a, how a sportsman did their stuff from looking at a photograph in 1902. But from 1905, when we see the front foot of Trumper, you know, off the ground, hovering just over where it's going to land and slightly out of focus, we get that feeling of the way in which sport can kind of challenge and transcend the machine um can can mm. uh it, it symbolizes the game within the game that had previously been inaccessible this is a book about um a photo as i said but it also makes very clear what a literary sport mm. cricket is trumper is the great aestheticized yes. figure you describe all these writers who are obsessed even by the sound of his name yes. that, that yes. this has all these connotations of trumper mm. and he wouldn't have been mm. such a great player if he had a less um, you know, a name that hadn't yes, didn't sound yeah, quite. Yeah. With the possible exception of boxing, there are a few other sports that have attracted the same kind of literary writing. What is it mm. about cricket that that so fascinates writers in particular? It's oh, a good question. You hit me right where I live there, James. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone could answer the question, well, Gideon, it'd be you. Well, I think um, the, that distance, for one thing, that distance between the spectator and the uh, and the practitioner, does allow a kind of an imaginative scope. To, uh, to, to, to open up. There are all sorts of possibilities that, that can take place within that distance. You're theorising, you're speculating, you're moving towards conclusions without necessarily trying to be definitive. The action doesn't swamp you in cricket. You meet it sort of coming halfway. Uh, it's interesting that we... And that's defied the fact that now sport has been brought so close to us by, by electronic means. Uh, I guess because of the other aspect of repose in cricket... You know, have, you have that tremendous opportunity between deliveries to think about what you've just seen and to, uh, and to posit what, uh, what might take place. Uh, within a, a game of that duration, there seem to be sort of enormous kind of possibilities for romanticism and for, and for sentimentality and for um, aesthetic speculation to take place. You've got a lot of time in a game of cricket to do some writing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do. You absolutely do. Um, you make the point that uh, we, we do see cricket and sports now from all angles, literally mm. from the sky, from yeah. the stump, everywhere. What role then do you think that sporting photography plays nowadays, specifically in the sport of cricket? Well, I think this demonstrates just how powerful a still image can be mm. in an era when we're sort of completely overwhelmed by images. 
you know, we're still looking at this photograph from 1905 and still sort of noticing interesting and different details about it. That was one of the things that struck me about this photograph. I looked at this photograph endlessly. You had too, Jeff, since yes. we were kids. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, you know, I looked at it so often that I maybe hadn't been seeing it for a long time. Uh, and I began to sort of notice aspects of it that, uh, that, I'd, that were sort of so deeply impressed on my optical unconscious that I'd failed to recognise how absolutely marvellous they were. The way in which the figure sits absolutely at the centre of the frame and is kind of uh, silhouetted against the, uh, against the skyline, this empty part of the skyline. The fact that he's changed the, f the shape of the frame to a landscape rather than a portrait, so you've got Trumpet jumping into the middle of it. That's an amazingly mm. audacious photograph. The fact that you've got these background verticals and, and horizontals that kind of give you a, a narration of the future direction of the stroke. The little space that's left in the, in the corner of the frame where you can imagine the ball vanishing. The perfect stillness of the bat at the top of its, uh, at the top of its downswing. Uh, the the fact that the f the front foot, as I said before, is slightly out of focus, sort of suggestive of the speed at which he's moving. When you think about what apparatus a photographer had in 1905, that is a miracle of mm. composition. It reminds me very much of the famous Jordan um, Air Jordan photos. Yes. Well, we I have so many questions I could ask you about this, but unfortunately, we're just about out of time. The book is Stroke of Genius, Victor Tromper and the Shot That Changed Cricket. It's published by Penguin. We've been talking to its author, Gideon Haig. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. to talk films, Simone Ubaldi's overseas. So we're joined once again by Hayley Inch. How are you going, Hayley? Oh, good morning. I'm just real chipper to talk some ultraviolence with you this morning. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like some ultraviolence of a morning. And, of course, if it's ultraviolence, it must be Mel Gibson. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about his new film, Hacksaw Ridge. This is his first directorial film for... 10 odd years, I think. He hasn't made anything since 2006's Apocalypto. And this focuses on the true real life story of Desmond Doss, who was a uh, soldier in World War II, but he was actually a conscientious objector. He was very down on the idea that we should be going around <coughs> killing everybody. So he decided that he was going to serve as a medic and hopefully save lives instead of taking them. And he actually went into battle. He refused to touch weapons. He was like, my beliefs do not allow me to, to touch weapons that could hurt people. So he actually went into battle with nothing to protect himself. And during the Battle of Okinawa, towards the tail end of World War II, he single-handedly saved the lives of 75 men by himself without weapons. With what? With his fists? Uh, basically. <laughs> Basically, he ran into yeah. He ran, he ran into battle, and he would just grab wounded soldiers and take wow. them back to the lines. And yeah, and it's intense. It's it? a very intense part of the movie. The depiction of this. Are you I've talking heard? about Chuck Norris? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to say, I, would, I feel like it's a bit of a missed opportunity that this is a war movie. When I saw the title Hacksaw mm -hmm. Ridge, I thought maybe a spin-off of the Saw. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that that particular scene, the the, the battle scene, mm. is beyond gruesome. Is this true? Was it shocking? This is very true. Right. I mean, when you go into a Mel Gibson movie, you're kind of not expecting things to be, you know, happiness and light all the way through. The first half of the movie is kind of very, um, it's it's kind of very strangely retro. Like you you feel like you're going through the old war movie beats of you know here's this young oh shucks you know fella who's um played by Andrew Garfield. Field, by the way, who does actually a very good job. Love Andrew Garfield. He's, he, he's really great. And, uh, yeah, he's kind of this, oh, shucks, you know, very humble man. You know, he goes through the romance with Girl, played by Therese Palmer. You know, he, he has the um, loving mother, um, played by Rachel Griffiths, who sadly is in the concerned mother stage of her career, which is a little bit disappointing. <laughs> um, and uh, a kind of already wounded um, father, played by Hugo Weaving, who's, like, really messed up from his own experiences in World War One, And so, yeah, you go through that story of establishing the family, establishing the romance, and then all of a sudden, you know, he decides that he needs to go serve. He goes to army training. Everyone there is like, what is wrong with you? Why are you here? You're completely useless if you're not going to carry weapons. Um, Vince Vaughn shows up as a as the company oh. sergeant and has a lot of fun with his role. Is he serious? He, he is serious, but he's definitely employed in a kind of, like, comic way where he's like dressing down all the soldiers and you know again it's a very that's a very familiar very familiar trope it it kind of feels like a more um benign version of full metal jacket really that part of the movie (laughs) um but yeah when they finally do get to okinawa and this battle sequence happens which comprises like the the large uh second half of the film things are all of a sudden very different. It gets very, very violent, very (coughs) gruesome, and clearly you're thrown into this space to basically experience the hell that is warfare, and it's extraordinarily affecting. Like, I don't think there's a director other than Mel Gibson who uses violence the way he does, where clearly he's, he's not just interested in entertaining you, he wants you to think about what are the extents of the human body and what it can suffer and what it can go through and can the human spirit survive that, which is an interesting thesis to go through on film, particularly considering, you know, the vast majority of films that are violent are violent for our entertainment and we're meant to find enjoyment in that. Gibson kind of straddles this weird line where you are fascinated with how they put it together, but it's also this very viscerally discomforting thing. He does As seem well. to have a almost obsession with the mortification of the flesh, though, doesn't he? It seems to be really? a constant. Yeah, yeah, theme. yeah. And this is almost like a in a strange but fitting way. This is almost like a partner to Passion of the Christ in a mm. way, because he portrays Doss as this very Christ-like Masonic figure, um, which you know how comfortable you feel with that about a real man. I will leave that, you know, for for viewers to decide, um, and it. it yeah, it, it really does fall back on that Christian myth of, you know, you, you must go through all of this suffering to find God, to find peace. I was going to say, the, yeah. the obsession with the, the flesh and stuff is very Catholic, this idea mm. of, you know, finding spirituality through the damaging of flesh and the bloodiness of Christ and stuff. Mm. Is it kind of a general secret religious overtone or is it just that subtle kind of representation of him as a kind of Jesus Christ figure? I don't know if it's that subtle. I think, <laughs> I think, Very, you, can, okay, right. I think you can figure it out pretty easily <laughs> what he's getting at here. I think, I think you know, it, it, it's. Uh, I found it hard talking about this movie because I don't necessarily think it is a bad movie and that Gibson is a bad filmmaker. It's just I feel like 
focusing on the story of a pacifist and making it this hugely violent, discomforting, yeah. almost like spectacle. Yeah, it feels like those two things are constantly hammering against each other the whole time. Mm. And there's strange things like, you know, um, there's... Th- 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 there's all these points in the film where you're kind of meant to think about, you know, war, it's so useless, it's horrible, all these people are humans and they have to go through this suffering. And then you see things like the opposing Japanese forces in this movie are not portrayed like people. They are a horde. They are just a horde that keep coming up against the Americans and it's really uncomfortable. Like, you kind of feel like that they, in a way, are not given a humanised level the way that the American soldiers are and kind of every time there were there were Japanese characters on screen I felt really squeaky. Mm. Uh, Gibson obviously a controversial um, figure these mm. days was this do you think this was sort of a he went into this as an a to try and redeem himself I mean you, you were talking off air that it doesn't that the promotion for it doesn't actually make much of Mel Gibson's involvement. No so all of the promotion kind of will mention that it's from the director of Braveheart and Passion of the Christ but not mention him by name so I think it's kind of like a slow with you know reintroducing Mel to the world <laughs> you may have heard sort of, this of man. thing you may have heard of this man and I think yeah you kind of look at the story and like you see the things that he was interested in with his last two films like Passion of the Christ which is you know in Aramaic um, a which is in pre-Columbian languages, you know, he was always interested in these kind of um, not necessarily commercial things, whereas you kind of look at this movie and you're like, oh, American heroes, war, you know, this is this is kind of, yeah, clearly his comeback movie. Though it's very interesting considering it's a very American story. Apart from Andrew Garfield, who's British, and Vince Vaughan, who is clearly American, the entire cast and crew are Australian. Really? It was actually Yeah, it was actually filmed up outside of Sydney. Apparently, yeah. if you yeah, if you get too overwhelmed with the battle scene, you know, just think apparently it was filmed in a cow paddock somewhere. Oh. So, <laughs> and, you know, so and there's a whole heap of actors who, who show up. Like, obviously, there's Hugo Weaving and, and Rachel Griffiths. There's Sam Worthington. There's Ryan Core, There's Luke Bracey. You know, they're all Australians. Wow. And they all do a pretty damn good job, actually. Out of interest, this might be a dumb question. Is Dross, is it possible that he's still alive or is there family members? No, so he passed away in 2006 and you do kind of get something towards over the end credits where you see him himself talking and it does kind of reiterate for you that maybe he wouldn't have been so keen on this adaptation (laughs) because he's so self-effacing and he was just always just kind of like, no, I'm not a hero. I I was just doing what what I thought was right. The, you know, the, the real heroes are the boys who went out there and, you know, ran into hellfire, basically. May not be a hero, but might be Jesus Christ is what we're getting from that. (laughs) Possibly. So just as a takeaway, good movie, not good movie? Oh, look, I think if you're interested in it, give it a go. Um, If you're squeamish in any way whatsoever, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. You'll be fine. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking about Mel Gibson's new film, Hacksaw Ridge, with Hayley Inch. Thanks so much for coming in, Hayley. Our pleasure. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.